This is the word of the Lord from Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call to him while he is near. Let the wicked one abandon his way and the sinful one his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord so he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will freely forgive. For my thoughts are not your thoughts and your ways are not my ways. This is the Lord's declaration. For as heaven is higher than earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For just as rain and snow fall from heaven and do not return there without saturating the earth and making it germinate and sprout, and providing seed to sow and food to eat, so my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. Good morning, church. If you don't know me, my name's John Fox. I'm one of the pastors here. And our goal today, said so this at the first service, is still true. Our goal today is to have as many people up here on stage before Reese preaches as possible. So uh, we're going to have, you know, a, a couple other people. I'm, I'm kidding. Reese is coming right after me. But he asked me to introduce him this morning. So if you don't know, we have been in a search for some time now for a new lead pastor. So Reese Woodruff is our lead pastor candidate. Uh, We've been talking for a few months. We've talked with a number of people, and we've had a team, the pastor search team, that we have uh, really helped us as a church to vet people and go through a a solid process, the most rigorous process I've ever been a part of, uh, to try to determine what's God's will for us. And so um, we've been having conversations here over the past few months, Reese and his wife Meredith came up just a few weeks ago to scout the, scout the land, see what things were looking like up here. And so they kind of came and were incognito in the service, sitting in the chairs. I believe they sat in somebody's seat, of course. So, um, uh, But yeah, they kind of have been checking us out and, and the conversations have been going really well. And so we said, why don't you come up? You know, this is a step in the process that you come up and preach. So that's what Reese is going to do today. And we're really excited about it. So if you would, uh, welcome with me, Reese Woodruff, to come up and preach. All right. Thanks, Sean. Good morning, church. How are we doing? Good. Well, it really is a joy and a pleasure to get to be here with you all today. Me and my wife, Meredith, have felt very welcomed into the body this morning. And even though you're just getting to meet us, many of you for the first time, uh, we've known about Sound City, like John said, for a number of months now. And during that process of going through the journey, our heart and affection has really grown for you as a people of God. And we're genuinely excited. I, I really believe that the best days of kingdom ministry are ahead for this church, and I'm excited to see how the Lord is going to work in and through Sound City to spread the hope of Jesus in the the months and the years to come. So with that, let me say a quick prayer, and then we're going to jump in to the text for this morning. Father, I do thank you for each and every person here today, whether they've been coming for years or months, or if this is their very first time to be under this roof, we thank you and we praise you for each and every one. God, we thank you for your word, as we've already been singing and and hearing about this morning that is powerful to achieve its purpose and powerful in our lives. God, I do pray now that as we open up your word, Lord, that you would speak to us, that you would 
till the soil of our hearts, make it open and ready to receive your truth. And God, I pray that um, we would uh, see your word uh, have its powerful effect in us, God. Uh, Use this time, use me to just simply be a conduit of your word that has all of the power in it. We love you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, uh, this past summer, the polling organization Gallup, some of you might know of, they did a nationwide big survey where they tried to get a sense of the level of confidence that we as Americans have in the major cultural institutions in our country. And they looked at things across the board from the military to uh, schools to the court system to small businesses. And they essentially asked us, hey, how confident are you that when one of these communities says something that they are going to follow through on their word? Uh, What do you do with that? Do you rely on it? Do you believe it? Do you tend to doubt it? And it probably won't be a, a huge surprise to anyone here that we as Americans have very little faith in the institutions in our country that historically we've really relied on, that we've looked to, to help us navigate life. In fact, of the the 14 different institutions they asked about, our confidence in all 14 are at historical all-time lows. And to give just a a couple of examples, only 38% of Americans said that we have a lot of confidence in the words of the scientific community. Uh, 28% said uh, we have trust in our uh, school systems. 26% said that we believe the words of big tech companies, which I know this is kind of a center of some big tech, so not to offend anyone, but that's that's what the data says. And only 18% of us have faith in the words of our federal government. And what Gallup said is they looked at all of this data and they wrote a big article, uh, the title of which went something like this, we as Americans are facing an unprecedented crisis of confidence in our country. We live in a time where there really have never been more voices, right? Never more information coming at us from every angle, telling us what to believe, what to think, how we should live our life. And yet those words evidently have never felt emptier to us. And it's in this moment, this cultural context where I would say our need for a voice that we can count on has never been greater. We need a word that we can build our life on. We need a, a voice that we can trust that has power, that has substance to it. And yet it doesn't seem to be here in our culture. Now, the reason I bring all this up <clears throat> is because as you probably could tell from some of the songs and the verses that were read is we're in Isaiah 55 this morning. The chapter is all about the voice of God in his word. And the claim of this chapter is that in a world of so many empty words, God's word is the only one that is really worth listening to, that's worth building your life upon. And so the question that I want to talk through with you this morning is why is that the case? Right? Why in a world of empty voices Should we listen and care about what God's word has to say? Well, in Isaiah 53, 
I think we'd get that answer. We're going to learn three things in particular in this chapter. Our need for God's word, the invitation of God's word, and then finally the certainty of God's word. Right? The need for it, the invitation of it, and the certainty of it. So let's jump in and see what we see first about the need for God's word. We're going to start in verse one. If you have a Bible or a phone, go there. And as you are, a quick reminder, this section in the book of Isaiah is likely written to Israel when they are still in exile because of their choice to rebel against God. And it's into that pretty desperate situation that the voice of God comes to his people in verse one. God says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, he who has no money, come buy and eat, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? The chapter begins uh, with what is really this invitation to all of humanity, to a feast. And we're going to unpack that a little bit in a second, but first I don't want you to miss the reason that we need this invitation so much is because we are hungry. Verse two, why do you spend your money on that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Now, obviously, God, he's talking metaphorically here. He's not talking about literal bread or literal hunger. It's a metaphor, but it's a metaphor that's pointing to a real problem that all humans eventually face, what you might call the problem of dissatisfaction. And it goes something like this. See if you can identify with this experience. All of us believe at some point that there is something out in the world that if we could just get our hands on, would finally satisfy us, only to find out upon getting it that it lets us down. It doesn't get the job done. All of us eventually realize there is something in my soul that's hungry. I am dissatisfied. And so we go out into the world looking for bread to satisfy it. But when we finally get our hands on it and we take our first bite, it turns into ash in our mouth. It lets us down every time. It's the perpetual problem of dissatisfaction. And it could be anything. Bread could be a certain level of uh, success in school, a certain level of success or notoriety in your career. It could be an amount of power or money. It could be a certain kind of relationship. It could be a picture of the type of family you want so desperately. It could be anything. But verse two says it never works. We get our hands on it, but then we realize this is not bread at all. And no one, I think, has captured this experience better than C.S. Lewis and his uh, essay on hope. Hear what he says about it. He says, most people if they had really learned to look into their hearts, would know that they do want and want acutely something that cannot be had in this world. The longings which arise in us when we first fall in love or think of some foreign country or first take up some subject that excites us are longings which no marriage, no travel, no learning can really satisfy. 
I'm not now speaking of what would ordinarily be called unsuccessful marriages or holidays or careers. I'm speaking of the best possible ones. There was something that we grasped at in that first moment of longing, which just fades away in the reality. The spouse may be a good spouse. The hotels and scenery may have been excellent. It turned out to be a good job, but it, it has evaded us. That is our problem. But as we read on, we see that this problem of dissatisfaction is is really just the fruit of a much deeper issue in our lives. Right after God exposes this need, look back at verse 2 and 3. He pleads with us, therefore, to open our ears. He says, listen diligently to me. And eat what is good. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul might live. In other words, the reason we are so hungry, the reason we're discontented is because we have a hearing problem. We have exchanged, God says, his voice for our own voice and our souls are withering as a result. We're famished. See, if God really is the the creator of all things, which we believe that he is, if God really did speak all of reality into existence, including you and I, and if he really does hold every single molecule in this universe together with the word of his power, that only makes sense that he would know better than I do or better than you do how life is designed to work best. Right? He drew up the blueprints. He crafted it together. He wrote the owner's manual, if you will. And he's saying here that the thing we need most is that wisdom that we have rejected. It's why in verse 8 and 9, God says, My thoughts, they're not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts, which is God's way of saying we're underqualified for the job of running our own life. Right? The distance between our wisdom, the very wisdom we need to lead to flourishing, and the distance uh, between that uh, and God's wisdom is greater than the city of Linwood is from the furthest galaxy. Right? It's a significant gap, and we have ignored that wisdom. And like a body, like a human body, begins to disintegrate. It begins to fall apart without bread. Our souls are hungry for a lack of God's word. Why do we need the voice of God in our life? Because his is the only voice powerful enough to give us life, right? The only voice that knows where true bread is, where we can find that thing that will finally satisfy our longings. But the amazing thing about this chapter Isaiah 55, is that as soon as God exposes this need, he immediately moves to begin to meet it. We're hungry for his word, and so what does God do? God begins to speak. And here, his speaking is not a word of condemnation, it is a word of invitation. 
In the first uh, seven verses of Isaiah 55, there are 13 imperatives, but none of them are stern commands. Rather, it's the the voice of uh, someone pleading with us to come get the thing that we need most. Listen, God says, come everyone who thirsts. Come, buy and eat without price. Incline your ear. Listen, hear, delight yourself with rich food. Seek the Lord. Return to me. This is one of the most warm and welcoming passages in all of the scriptures to hungry and weary souls. God says, I'm throwing this great feast and everyone is invited. And as the chapter goes on, we learn more about why this feast is so great. And the reason is because at it, God offers anyone who responds three things. He offers us pardon, he offers us satisfaction, and he offers us hope. Pardon, satisfaction, and hope. So let's look at each one. Verse 7, God's powerful word first invites us to find pardon. It says, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Now, if you've been uh, following along with the church through this series in Isaiah, uh, you might know that for the first big chunk of the book, about the first 39 chapters, God's voice does go out, but it goes out mainly as a voice of judgment against his people for their rebellion. There's a little bit of hope scattered in here and there, but for the most part, it is a word of condemnation. But in this section of uh, the book, that judgment has turned into compassion, The message uh, shifts and God says, I am now ready and longing to shower compassion upon you, right? I am here to pardon you. And in case anyone hears that, even this morning and says that that's a great invitation, but clearly that does not apply to me. Maybe God can forgive the sins of those people, but my sin runs far too deep for God to welcome me in. If that's you, God says, that's great. Cause guess what? I came not only to pardon, I came to pardon abundantly, to abundantly pardon, right? There's no one beyond the reach of my compassion. Now, you might hear that and think, okay, but how does that work? Right, that's great, but how does God go from judgment to compassion in this part of Isaiah? And the answer is the character, the mysterious figure that Pastor Jason preached on last Sunday from Isaiah 53. If you were here just two chapters before uh, where we're at today, the suffering servant uh, comes out and he's the shrouded figure that Isaiah prophesied would one day come and deal with Israel's sin by putting himself in Israel's place. Just to read one verse from that chapter. It says, he, talking about the servant, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And if you look at Isaiah 
the pivot point between God's judgment and his invitation to pardon is the servant that we talked about last week. Uh, So yesterday was Veterans Day, as you probably know. And as I was thinking about it, I was reminded of a a story I heard. Specifically, there's a uh, destroyer in the U.S. Navy named the the USS Michael Mansour. And it's named after Michael Mansour, who in 2006 uh, was on a mission in hostile territory. And while he was in a reconnaissance position, a grenade was lobbed up onto the roof uh, between him and two of his friends. And without hesitation, Michael threw his body onto this grenade as it went off, killing him instantly, but saving the life of his two uh, comrades. And so we as a country, we gave him a medal and we named a ship after him because we wanted to be reminded of his sacrifice. But at the medal ceremony uh, for Michael, this is what they said. They said, death came for Michael's friends, but Michael said, you cannot have them. I will go in their stead. And that is what the suffering servant has said to us. Right? Sin, the, the penalty of it came for us, and yet this servant said, you cannot have them. I will go in their place. With his wounds, we are healed. We're invited into life. Pardon is offered to us, and yet it's important for us to see that while this invitation that goes out is universal, right? Come everyone who is hungry, only some people find a seat at the table. And in verse one, we learn who it's those who don't try to pay for a seat, right? It's really interesting. Isaiah says, come to God's feast, come, but don't bring any money, right? Come without price, In other words, the only term of admission to this banquet hall is your poverty. And this is important because uh, there are many people today that when they think about Christians, they, they think of people who think they have the favor of God because they've jumped through some religious hoops, right? They don't do these particular sins. They obey the Bible. They check these boxes off. And because of that, God smiles upon their life. And that's what many people think. Some people think that who uh, are themselves, call themselves Christians, but that could not be more far from the truth. I see a Christian is not somebody who thinks they bring anything to the banquet of God's love, but comes knowing they are utterly desperate Right, a Christian is someone that comes and knocks on the door empty-handed and says, I don't have anything to bring for all my efforts to pursue bread. I'm empty-handed. I'm coming poor. I am morally bankrupt. But I hear that at this table, there's compassion. But I hear that at this banquet, there is pardon for the most morally desperate person in the world. And when we say that to God, the door opens and we get a seat at the table. That's what a Christian is. The only fee is our poverty. So first, God's powerful word. Why is it so powerful? It's because it invites the poor to come and be forgiven, to be pardoned. But then second, 
we see also that it offers us satisfaction, the satisfaction that we all crave. See, if this invitation was only about forgiveness, it'd kind of be like we would come up to the banquet hall and knock on the door and God would say, hey, you're forgiven, now go about your business, go about your life. But because satisfaction is offered to us here, we come and God says, you're forgiven and now you may come in, right? Come grab a seat at the table, come feast on rich food and good food. See, there's something at this feast that satisfies the place that we all need nourishment. And in verse three, we learn a little bit about what it is. It says, incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant. A covenant. And when you hear the language of covenant in the scripture, it is always the language of relationship because that's what a covenant is. It defines how two parties are going to relate to one another. And in verse uh, 8 and 10 of the chapter right before this, chapter 54, we learn a little bit more about the terms of this particular covenant. When God says, in overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed. God says, my anger is passing away, and now I'm inviting you into an eternal covenant. And the reason that it's eternal, church, is that the covenant is based on the never-ending, steadfast love of God. See, if the covenant was based on uh, two-way love, God's love for us, but also our love for him, then he could never call it an everlasting covenant. Because our love for God is fickle, right? It goes up one day, it goes down the next. If it was based on that, the covenant would be broken every single day. But God says, no, this is an eternal covenant because it is based on my love for you. Even when your love comes and goes. And that, church, is what our souls need more than anything else. That's what we're hungry for. The main course at this banquet that we've been invited to is the steadfast, unchanging love of our creator. In that same essay, later on, C.S. Lewis, he says this, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exist. A baby feels hunger? Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim? Well, there's such a thing as water. And if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. And he's right, church. You were made not just for created things. You were made for the creator. And nothing else will satisfy the deep place of our hunger. Right, your 
soul as an image bearer of God is a, a beautiful thing. It's a magnificent thing, and it is way too magnificent to be satisfied with some created thing like money or food or pleasure or satisfaction. You're too magnificent for that. You were created for God. And everything else is going to fall short. Only the feast of God's eternal love can begin to take our hunger away. But that's what's offered to us here. So the powerful word of God, it gives us pardon. Come into the feast. It gives us satisfaction. Come dine on my affection for you. But then last, it gives us hope. Verse 12 and 13, the end of this chapter. This really is an amazing picture. It says, for you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. And this is a a picture of the final future that awaits everyone that is around God's banquet table. And what I I want us to notice is that this picture, it's not just talking about the redemption of you and me, it's talking about the redemption of the entire material world. And it's important to see because I think sometimes we can think that our hope as believers, our final hope is that we'll somehow fly away from this world to some ethereal netherworld where we'll float around for all of eternity as a ball of disembodied light. But doesn't that sound amazing? It doesn't. It doesn't really to me, if I'm honest. Because I have a, I have skin, I'm a, a infleshed person that lives in a material world, but this is what God says he's going to redeem, right? The Christian hope is that one day that heaven is going to come back down to this earth and renew not just you and me, but every single molecule that has been broken and corrupted by the fall. He talks about the the thorns and the briars being taken away. That's an allusion to Genesis 3, talking about the thorns of the curse. But there's a day coming when the wounds of this suffering servant will heal not just our souls, but every part of the cosmos. And every thorn will be no more. That's an amazing source of hope that God's word gives to us, a hope that no other worldview can offer, no other religion even claims to offer anything like that, a personal, perfected, physical world with God at the center of it forever, where the trees are going to clap their hands, right? the mountains are going to burst forth into singing. I don't know exactly what that looks like, but I shared at the first service, there's no mountains in Texas. And the trees, there's trees in Texas, but they're pretty stumpy. They're not quite as impressive. And I'm sure they'll be beautiful uh, whenever they clap their hands, but I would love to be in Washington to see what that looks like when the day comes. <laughs> so we, we started off with this question. In a world of empty words, why should we care about God's word? What's so great about the voice of God and his word? And the answer is because only God's word 
has the power to give us pardon, the power to satisfy our restlessness and hope for the future. Only God's word has that kind of power. Pardon, satisfaction, hope. It's an amazing invitation that's laid out for us in this chapter, but it is so amazing that some of us may be wondering, how do we know that we can trust it? Right? Who knows if it's not too good to be true? Well, what's interesting is that it seems like God actually knows that's a natural question that's going to pop up in our mind as you're reading Isaiah 55, because right after he talks about this invitation in verse 10 and 11, he reassures his people that you can trust his word. Here's what he says. He says, as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that for which I purpose and shall succeed in the things for which I sent it. Our family, we really enjoy uh, gardening. We have a couple of raised bed gardens in our backyard. And if you buy seeds on the little packet, they have uh, information. And part of it is how long it takes for the seed to sprout. So if you're planting kale, it takes about five days. If you're planting uh, snow peas, it takes about seven days. And the reason that they can put that information on the packet with a fair amount of confidence is because they know if you put a seed in the ground and then you water that seed very reliably, it is going to sprout from the ground. And God says, that is like my word. My word is like water. It's like rain that comes to the earth and it accomplishes the task that it set out to accomplish. And in these verses, after making these amazing promises and invitation, God reassures my people. My word accomplishes its purpose. You can trust these words. You can build your life on these promises. And yet, while that must have been uh, all that they needed, it must have been sufficient for the people of Israel. I hope we, we see, church, that we today have a reason for confidence in God's spoken word that they never came close to having. We have a resource, an assurance in God's word that they never even dreamed of having because see, for the original audience of Isaiah 55, these promises hung on this figure of Isaiah 53 on this shadowy servant that would one day come and open the door to God's banquet hall. But don't you see, we don't just have a promise to hold on to because in Jesus the Messiah, God's promises became a person. The promises of God became a person. The hope of Israel became human. The spoken word of God became the embodied, enfleshed word of God. And that makes all the difference. You see, it's, it's one thing for God to come to his people and say, I'm a God of compassion. I'm ready to forgive you. That's comforting. But when the compassion of God 
becomes a huggable, tangible, touchable, pierceable man and is nailed to the cross to make that invitation of forgiveness possible to you and me, that's not just comforting. Church, that should change our life. It's one thing for God to say, I want to satisfy your soul. It's something different for Jesus to say, I'm here not just to give you bread. I came to be bread. And just like bread and wheat must be crushed and torn to go into your body to give you life, I have come to be crushed. I've come to be torn so that you can have life. It's one thing for God to say a day is coming where every thorn will be taken away. It's something different to see the thorns of the fall piercing, cutting into the head of our Savior so that we could know that no matter what this life brings, there is a day coming where everything sad will become untrue, where every thorn will be burned up in the love of of our Savior, Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate expression of God's word who, just like rain, comes from the mouth of God from heaven down to earth and gives life to the world, the life that can satisfy our souls. And when we see that, when that picture captures our imagination. It gives us confidence. At least it should give us confidence that every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord, we can count on. If God did this, if the son sacrificed this, there's no word in the scriptures that we can't take to the bank because God didn't just speak. He put his money where his mouth is at infinite cost to himself As Paul said it in Romans 8, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with with him graciously give us all things? We can trust him. We can trust his word. So as we get ready to wrap up here, what's this mean? What's this mean for you and me? Everything that we've said. Well, I think the main encouragement of Isaiah 55, uh, the invitation is really to come and feast on the powerful word of God. Right? Come feast on God's powerful word that offers pardon and satisfaction and, and hope to all of us. And when we say the word of God, we of course mean the scriptures the spoken word of God written for us in the pages of the Bible, but we mean something more than that. We mean the capital W word of God, the ultimate expression of God's word that these words are meant to lead us to. See, the the Bible, when you see a Bible laying around your house or laying around the church, I hope we see it as much more than an invitation to information to fill our heads with right doctrinal truth, even though that's really important. But it's more than that. It's an invitation to a relationship. It's an invitation to sit at the table with Jesus, the Messiah, and receive real bread, the thing that we need most. And so I don't know where you're at this morning. If you're here 
And maybe you are hungry. Maybe you've never known that there was this free invitation laid out at the table for you. If that's you, my, my plea, my encouragement with you would, before you would be to abandon your pursuit of bread that will never satisfy and come receive the forgiveness and the love of Jesus. One of my favorite hymns, we have part of it uh, hung up on our living room at the house. It says, weary, working, burdened one, why do you toil so? Cease your doing, all was done long, long ago. Lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. Don't you know, no bread like we just sung in this world will satisfy you. You don't need it. All you need is the love of Jesus. Come to him, come to him poor, and he has mercy. But then if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, you've come to the table of God's love. The invitation is the same for you. Come feast on this powerful word of God. One of the values of Sound City here that we we love is a commitment to living life grounded in the scriptures. And that's all that this passage is saying. Ground your life in the word even more, right? Push your roots down deeper. Because that can be sometimes hard for us to do when uh, life gets, gets busy, right? I was thinking about this this past week, that sometimes I uh, eat God's word, if you will, in a similar way that a marathon runner eats. Uh, I've never run a marathon, uh, but I've seen television. I've seen what it's like. And when people are running, they, they don't dine, right? They, they put back Gatorade. They throw some energy stuff in their mouth to just help them get a boost toward their real goal. And that's such a picture of oftentimes what my relationship with the Lord, uh, with the word can look like. Life is busy. I'm pursuing a goal and I kind of come to God's word on a Sunday or, you know, maybe on a quick app to give me just a little boost to help me uh, make progress toward the real thing that I'm after. But the invitation here is, hey, the thing that you're after, it's in the word. Are you feasting? Are you making time to eat? Are you making time to linger with the words of God that are meant to welcome you to the table with the word of God? So the question for us, I think, are you feasting? The invitation is out. Let us be a a people. Let us be a church that is rooted, grounded in the scriptures all the more, as I know this church has a legacy of doing. May that continue for as long as there's a sound city. And if you're here and you don't know how to do that, because I recognize that, the word, the scriptures, they can be kind of intimidating. They can be hard to understand. Uh, Find someone. You know, find a brother, find a sister who maybe feels a little bit more comfortable and say, hey, can we go through a book of the Bible? Can we study together? Can you teach me how to prepare a meal, if you will, uh, in the word? I'm sure there are people. That's why we need each other, to help each other come and feast, to lead each other to that table. So let's pray to that end. Father, thank you for your powerful word that comes to us, Lord, in our hungry and desperate and needy state and satisfies our souls. God, if there's anyone here that's hungry, Lord, that's restless, may they hear your voice saying, come, 
come to the table. You don't have to pay a cover charge. There's mercy here for you. And for those of us at the table, Lord, may we even more, all the more, ground ourselves in your life-giving word. We love you. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.